This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. Last week we had been looking at, we'd finished, when, we, when the class was over, we had been looking at the Mosaic Covenant um, and we had quickly talked about the six principles, we called them, that uh, help us as we're trying to understand passages in the New Testament uh, that speak about the law. And just as a kind of a, a concluding thought on the New Testament use of the law, um, it seems, you know, in addition to those principles, it seems to me helpful to keep uh, as a kind of a controlling paradigm in our mind to keep Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, there are, seems to me few, if really no more definitive treatments of the law within the New Testament uh, than Christ's Sermon on the Mount. We oftentimes think of you know, certain passages in the Pauline epistles as being uh, foundational, but it seems to me that probably the, the clearest probably treatment of the law in the New Testament is the Sermon on the Mount. So we ought to allow it, I think, to control a lot of our interpretation of what the New Testament means when it discusses the law. And when you take just a, a general view of the Sermon on the Mount, there are a couple things that are clear. First of all, the, the Sermon on the Mount leaves little doubt that the law has an eternal and binding authority. There's really no, no doubt about that as, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's probably particularly clear at the start, or toward the start of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, in verses 17 through 20. Uh, read those couple verses there. Uh, Christ is speaking, he's, just, he's given the Beatitudes, uh, talked about his disciples being uh, salt and light. And then in verse 17 he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I think it's that those couple of verses I don't think need too much uh, explanation to show that, the law, that Christ views the law as having abiding authority. Uh, he talks about uh, not having come to destroy but to fulfill the law. Uh, he speaks of the law as being more enduring than the physical creation. Uh, everyone is to do the commandments and to teach others to do the commandments. Uh, his disciples are expected to have a righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees. There's, you really can't read even those handful of verses and think that Christ somehow is softening the law 
that the law has passed away from its uh, authoritative position in the faith. Uh, the, the law clearly is of a binding authority. But you also realize through the Sermon on the Mount that the law, as it was being taught by contemporary Judaism at the time, had been perversely distorted. Uh, there was a fundamental misunderstanding of the law that was pervasive at the day, or in the day. Uh, you see that particularly through the rest of chapter 5 of Matthew when Christ goes through the six antitheses, as they're known, uh, when six times over Christ says, You have heard it said, blank, but I say to you, blank. Where Christ goes through and uh, essentially shows how the law has been misunderstood and mistaught, and he then authoritatively corrects those views of the law. Uh, it's clear from those six antitheses that the law, as it was being taught in the day, uh, had been fundamentally distorted and had been distorted to such an extent that it was actually working counter to its intended purpose. And so Christ has come, and in this Sermon on the Mount specifically, and then in His larger teaching as well, uh, He has come to correct that misconception of the law. Now you find that same principle expanded in the epistles, the New Testament epistles, uh, when the error in view is not as much the Judaism of the day as it is the Judaizing tendencies within the early church. Uh, you see the same uh, critique of not the law in its true nature, but rather the fundamental misunderstandings of the law that were taken as being the law at the time. Uh, even in Christ's teaching, uh, you see this pretty clear fact that the law has been fundamentally misunderstood and it, it's the understanding of the law needs to be corrected. But then, thirdly, not only is the law still authoritative, but in need of correction, at least in the popular view of the day, but finally, you see in the Sermon on the Mount that a correct view of the law, when the errors of the day have been corrected, a correct view of the law still is enjoined upon Christ's followers. Uh, that's really the, the whole point of those six antitheses in Matthew chapter 5. Um, the law is being, Christ is clarifying the law and then pressing it upon His disciples. That's also the point of Christ's declaration there in chapter 5 verse 20 that the righteousness of His people must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Uh, it's the point of Jesus' expressed desire in verse 48 at the end of chapter 5 uh, when He says that He wants His people to be perfect as His Father is perfect. You know, certainly much has changed. Uh, you know, Christ throughout, uh, particularly chapter 5, Christ is forcefully internalizing the law, if you want to put it that way. He's internalizing it and giving it a clarity that it hasn't had before. Uh, so therefore, our understanding of the law must be tweaked in some ways. Certainly the understanding of the law in that day had to be. But when the law is properly understood, it still is binding and it still is enjoined upon God's people. So overall, the Sermon on the Mount presents a picture of the law as being an eternal authority that must be rescued from abuse, certainly, and it must be brought into the current age of redemptive understanding. In this case, it needs to be understood of the heart as well as of the outward actions. But when all these things are done, when it's rescued from abuse, when it's properly understood, it then is applied to God's people. 
it's not dismissed as being of a bygone redemptive era or being of a, a non-redemptive use. Uh, it is part of the covenant of grace and it still is applied, properly understood within that covenant. Now the law is to be maintained, is to be vindicated, is to be clarified, and then it's to be applied. Now that's the, the picture that emerges from the Sermon on the Mount. And now certainly we believe that all of the scriptures uh, are inspired. They're all written by the same Holy Spirit. Uh, different men have written it, but fundamentally it's God Himself who has written all the scriptures. And so therefore, it ought not surprise us that this same view of the law continues to crop up through the rest of the New Testament. Um, if something seems somewhat contradictory or seems more difficult to understand in later passages, we ought to let this clearer passage, uh, this clearer view of the law in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, guide our interpretation of some of the later uh, mentionings of the law. Uh, we have a, a more uh, protracted treatment of it here, a more clear treatment of it, and we sometimes get in the epistles where it's mentioned in passing by Paul in particular, and it seems to me that we ought to allow this uh, more detailed view given by Christ, we ought to allow it to control our interpretation. Um, I find it interesting that later on toward the close of the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2, in the first 12 or so verses of 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we see there that the law still is in the New Covenant doing what it had done all along. Uh, it's marking out God's people as a royal priesthood, uh, a holy nation. You know, we talked last week about how the law within the Mosaic Covenant was uh, essentially the vehicle through which God's people would be a blessing to all the nations. They would serve as a priesthood, uh, a national priesthood, so to speak, uh, showing God's holiness to men, drawing men to God. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, the law still is accomplishing that same purpose. Uh, if you... If you look, I won't spend any time in it, but if you have a chance to look there in 1 Peter chapter 2, in the first eight verses, Peter pretty clearly is dealing with obedience to the law among Christians. And then in verse 9, he speaks of them being a royal priesthood. He uses the same language that had been used in Exodus under the Mosaic Covenant. And then in verses 11 through 12, he returns to the importance of obedience within the church. Very clearly, uh, Peter is understanding obedience as conformity to the law, and he sees that obedient conformity as being the way in which God's people are marked out as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. It's the same fundamental understanding of the law that had marked the Mosaic Covenant as well. Uh, the law as the vehicle for God's people serving as priests uh, in the midst of this world. So we see the, you know, that same view of the law maintained even into the New Testament. Now, with, with all that being said, there, people still have a lot of what you people would call like practical questions. Um, you know, if, if the law remains the same, if it's, if, if it's part of the covenant of grace still in the New Covenant, uh, what role is it to have in the lives of Christians? Um, and for, you know, when you're pastoring a congregation, you know, what people in the congregation will, will ask, you know, what, what role does the law play in the Christian life today? What, you know, how, how, does, how does a Christian today interact with the law? And it seems to me that that 
somewhat tricky question can be uh, addressed by asking how you use the law. Uh, how, how is the law used by an individual Christian? It seems to me there are three potential ways that you could use the law. In the first instance, you could supposedly use the law by ignoring it altogether. Uh, you can either be willfully negligent of it, or you can just uh, be ignorant of it. Um, there are any number of ways that you can ignore it, but it can easily be ignored. Now that, I think we could agree, is not really a, a viable option. Uh, to ignore God's law, scripturally speaking, uh, manifests a heart that is outside of God's saving covenant. I don't think that's really a, a viable option. Uh, the other, uh, A second option of how you can use the law is that you can focus on parts of the law that you keep. Uh, if, you, if you're generally an honest person, you can really hype up the ninth commandment about not bearing false witness. You can you know, really uh, focus on the sixth commandment of not committing murder, presuming you've never murdered anyone and you haven't read what Jesus says that commandment really means. Uh, it seems to me one of the, the favorites in much evangelical Christianity today is to, uh, if you're a heterosexual, you can focus on homosexuality as something forbidden in the law that you don't do, a part of the law that you keep. Uh, there are any number of ways that you can use the law by focusing on parts of it that you keep. And when you do that, it seems to me that you almost invariably run into the error of the Pharisees. Uh, you use the law to make yourself appear righteous. The third way that you can use the law is, I think, the correct way to use the law, the correct way to understand the law uh, throughout the covenant of grace, and particularly in the new covenant. And that is that you can focus on the parts of the law that you don't keep. Uh, you can focus on the parts of the law that tell you not to gossip, that tell you not to be bitter, uh, that tell you not to place your own amusements above worship. Uh, you can focus on the command not to covet. That one uh, unearthed a lot for Paul. Um, basically, you just focus on the parts of the law that you don't keep. And by doing that, you're shown your sin, uh, you're drawn out to greater love for the Christ who has saved you, uh, you're instructed in how to walk after holiness. Basically, by focusing on the parts of the law that you don't keep, the law serves its intended function. Uh, it shows the, the glory of Christ's sacrifice and it guides you as you seek to serve Him. So I think that uh, some of the potentially murky questions of how the law is to function in the life of a Christian today in the church, the New Testament era, it can be fairly easily, I think, addressed by that simple question. How do you use the law? Which parts of it do you look at? Which parts of it are important to you? Uh, if none of it is, then that's a problem. If you're always majoring on the parts that you keep, that's a problem. But if you're focusing on the parts that you don't keep, then I think you are safely and correctly using the law for the purpose that it was intended, not only when it was given on Mount Sinai, but also when it is brought into and expanded within the new covenant. I think that by that focus we can keep a right view of the law uh, even in the, the current redemptive era. Now, regrettably, that's probably all the time we have uh, for the law and the Mosaic Covenant and its treatment in the New 
Testament. Does anybody have any questions before we move on? I know that, like we said last time, I know the Mosaic Covenant and the law is an enormous topic. Uh, maybe you all have some specific questions we can take now since we have extra time. No chapel. That the, the, the law needs to be um, vindicated, clarified, and applied. Thanks for the help. Anything else? Well, I think that um, that that position, I think, should be uh, critiqued on, on two different front fronts. On the one hand, that the law was intended just for the national body and had sort of national geopolitical sorts of ends in view, and then on the other hand, that by being broken, it was. Uh, broken in the larger sense. By being transgressed, it was broken. Um, and I think in the first instance, as far as the law being intended for Israel as a national body, I think that the, the abiding presence of the law throughout the scriptures, uh, and specifically the Mosaic law from that point forward, indicates that it that it wasn't intended just for the national body. When you when you get into the New Testament and the the vestiges of a national Israel have been largely dropped, the law doesn't drop out of its role of importance. And whether it's in the Sermon on the Mount or Paul's treatment of it in his epistles, um, it's clear that the law has not passed away with the passing away of the importance of national Israel. Um, in Ephesians six. We looked at where you get Paul uh, referring to the fifth commandment and applying it to the Gentile congregation in Ephesus, uh, speaking to them as if the, the commandment was given to them, um, obviously applying it outside of the bounds of a, a national entity. And in that same application, he tells them that by obeying this commandment, uh, they will know God's blessing in the land that he's given to them. And in doing that, he obviously is understanding the land as broader than just the land of Canaan. But um, I think he, he's showing that it's, it's not the nationally or geographically restricted 
entity that it's sometimes held to be. And furthermore, the, a lot of the, if, if you're going to take the, the law as that sort of a entity, something that essentially determines whether or not Israel can obtain and then retain the land, you have to, essentially you have to argue that all that was required was a, I think oftentimes in the reading it's called relative fidelity, that essentially Israel just had, they didn't have to keep it perfectly, but they had to keep it well enough to stay in the land. And there's really quite simply no place in the scripture that gives any indication of a, a, the lowered bar of relative fidelity. There's always perfect righteousness that's demanded uh, in the midst of the law, Christ, uh, in the midst of the law, God again and again says uh, that Israel is to be holy as He is holy. Uh, His holiness is not a relative holiness, and that's not the holiness He's calling for in the law. Um, there's, that's not the holiness of which the Pharisees boasted in the New Testament. There's no. Um, I, I I can't see anything in the Scriptures that would serve as a foundation for any sort of understanding of relative fidelity. Um, and as far as the covenant being a, a national covenant that was broken, causing the exile, and, and we'll deal with the exile some today, um, and maybe that'll clarify it some too, but the law, I guess I mentioned this last week, the law essentially had built into it an accounting for failure in the sacrificial system, um, in all you know, the the priesthood. It was the law. Issue the law. It, it never was intended that God's people wouldn't fail to keep the law. I mean, they're sinners, and part part of the purpose of the Mosaic covenant was exposing sin and showing the need of atonement. Um, so to say that by breaking a law that can never be kept is what undid that covenant, it becomes largely nonsensical, it seems to me. Um, the, 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 you know, while we, ha- we certainly have to reckon with the exile and what that says about the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant in particular, and we'll, like I said, we'll get to that today, I don't think it in any way makes the law become some sort of a national entity that determines possession of the land. I don't know, is that, maybe that's not helpful at all, but. Anything else? All right. Well, we will move on then to the Davidic covenant. Um, as you're moving through. God's mounting revelation of the covenant of grace after the Mosaic covenant, you come to the Davidic covenant. Uh, now we're going to move through the Davidic covenant also at somewhat of a a rapid pace. Um, but thankfully, you know, although the Davidic covenant obviously is of incredible importance, it also, I think, can be treated fairly quickly. Um, it had the the developments that we find in it can be can be summed up fairly quickly, and also at the end of after we've looked at what we're going to look at with the Davidic covenant, I'll refer you all to some resources if you're interested in reading up a little bit more on the Davidic covenant and some of the, the details about it. But 
the, the Davidic covenant itself, unlike some of the other covenants that we've seen, it has a, a definite, undisputed starting point in the Scriptures. Now, you find that starting point in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, you also get a, I don't know if you want to call it a parallel account, or uh, you, get, you get another account of it in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Uh, but this morning, we'll, we'll work primarily out of the 2 Samuel chapter 7 account. And when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you're confronted with a situation very much like the covenant of works. Uh, neither in 2 Samuel chapter 7 nor in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 is the word berit found. The relationship between God and David that's being established here is not explicitly termed a covenant. But we do have the added benefit of further scriptural comment on this relationship. At several points later in the scriptures, the relationship between God and David that's being established here is explicitly referred to as a covenant. There's a couple of places where that occurs. You get it in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 5. It's referred to as a covenant in Psalm 89, verse 3. Also in Psalm 132, verses 11 and 12. There's a couple of examples of the... the um, the scriptures leave no doubt that this, although not called a covenant in its, this foundational passage, it clearly is uh, a covenant. In fact, if you, if you remember, when we were looking at the covenant of works, we used this example to say that the scriptures can describe the foundation of a covenant without using the terminology of covenant. Because with the Davidic covenant, it's very clear that it's a covenant. The scriptures explicitly call it that later, even though it's not termed, it, uh, although it's not termed as such in this actual passage. But uh, to make a long story short, the, the relationship that's being established here between God and David is very clearly a covenant. But what is the significance of the covenant, of this Davidic covenant? And to a certain extent, I'll refer you to and leave you with Robertson's treatment on the Davidic covenant in a lot of ways. Uh, his, his treatment of the Davidic covenant is quite thorough, it's very, a very good treatment of it. You also find that in most, of the, in most treatments of the Davidic covenant, there's a large degree of unanimity. There's not the, as much disagreement as there are on some of the other, uh, on some of the other covenants. So you can, you can kind of speak of a representative treatment or a standard treatment of the Davidic covenant, and Robertson's account of it is, is one of the best of those. Uh, there's really just one area of debate that sometimes crops up with the Davidic covenant, and that's on uh, the relative conditionality or unconditionality of the covenant, and Robertson includes a discussion of that even. So it's uh, a, good, a good treatment of the Davidic covenant. But I want to take some of those kind of generalities that Robertson traces, uh, add a little bit to them, and try to understand specifically how the Davidic covenant fits into the overall mounting clarity of the covenant of grace. Uh, we've talked about how God in each covenant is bringing greater clarity to his eternal covenant of grace, and we want to see how the Davidic covenant fits into that increasing clarity of God's purposes. And it seems to me that the, the central emphasis, really, of the Davidic covenant 
is that in this covenant, God is channeling His covenantal purposes through David and his descendants. And in doing that, in channeling His purposes through David and his descendants, God is revealing and re-emphasizing both the obedience that He requires and the mercy that He maintains. That seems to be the overriding emphasis of the Davidic covenant. Now, the, the first element of that, and really the, perhaps the, the great contribution of the Davidic covenant to the clarification of the covenant of grace, is that in this covenant, God is channeling His purposes through David and through his descendants. He's channeling his entire covenantal purpose through one man. Now, on the one, the one hand, it's, it's pretty clear in the Davidic covenant that God's covenantal purposes are flowing seamlessly, really, from Moses, which was the most recent manifestation of the covenant of grace, as flowing pretty seamlessly from Moses into David. Uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, Moses had spoke of governing principles for a king of Israel. As you all know, at the time of Deuteronomy, there was no king of Israel. Uh, the first king was Saul. It's a rather undesirable start to the monarchy. And then with the casting off of Saul, the anointing of David, we see that David is the, the true uh, king of Israel. He's the, in a sense, obviously, God intended for Saul to be the first one, but in a sense you can say that David was the man who was in view back in Deuteronomy 17. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant very clearly has a place built into it for a king, and it quickly becomes evident that that king is David. Now, there's not a sort of jerking movement from Moses to David as the nation goes from a non-monarchy to a monarchy, uh, the Mosaic Covenant always had had room for and had clearly anticipated uh, a king, and specifically we find that that king is David. So the movement from Moses to David is a, a seamless one. And you also see, once you get into the, to the Davidic Covenant, that it is clearly founded upon that prior Mosaic Covenant. A, a place where that is given great clarity is in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. At that point, King David is nearing his death, and he's given his last charge, so to speak, to his son Solomon, who will succeed him on the throne. And in exhorting Solomon to prosper in the continuation of the covenant and instructing Solomon how to do that, how to continue the covenant, David essentially has one piece of advice for his son. And his advice for Solomon is that he ought to follow the law of Moses. Uh, you see that particularly in verse 3. Essentially, the, the successful and prosperous continuation of the Davidic covenant hinges upon obedience to the Mosaic covenant. Uh, the two are, are inextricably linked. Uh, the law is foundational for the king uh, in all that he does. So, in any number of ways, the, the Mosaic covenant flows very naturally, very organically, into the Davidic covenant. And in a very real sense, the smooth operation of the Davidic covenant depends on the prior Mosaic covenant. Um, so it, it's clear from the get-go that the two covenants work together, that, that, that David, the Davidic covenant 
is forwarding the purposes that God had been pursuing through Moses. Um, God's covenantal purposes are flowing seamlessly from the one to the other, from Moses into David. Um, But as that transition occurs, you, you also get the clear indication that the Davidic covenant marks a sort of kind of a, a benchmark in the progression of God's covenantal purposes. Uh, it's, a, it's a clear point of uh, progressive accomplishment when you get to David. Uh, in Robertson's book, around page 230, I believe it is, uh, he deals with uh, certain developments that had occurred prior to Second Samuel chapter 7, uh, specifically in the opening chapters of Second Samuel. There are these developments that lead up to the establishment of the Davidic covenant. Uh, The long civil war between David's followers and the followers of the house of Saul has ended. David's captured Jerusalem. He's brought the ark into Jerusalem. There have been all of these uh, things that have occurred, sort of benchmarks to indicate that God's work is moving forward. All of these occur before the Davidic covenant is established. So you get the clear sense that the movement from Moses to David is one that's continuous, but it also, the Davidic covenant marks a, a point of progression within God's covenantal purposes. It seems to me that the, the clearest summation of that, uh, of the, the point of accomplishment that you have in the Davidic covenant, is found in uh, verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. The scriptures say that the Lord gave David rest from all of his enemies. And that you know, sets the, the stage for the establishment of the Davidic covenant. Now the, the pronouncement there of rest, you know, rest being given to David from his enemies, is a, an extremely significant pronouncement. Uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, chapter 12 verses 10 and 11, God had told Israel something remarkable. As you all know, in the book of Deuteronomy, Israel's poised on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. Uh, they're on the cusp of the promised land, and as they look into the promised land, they know that the land has been promised to them and that it shall be their possession, but they also know that it's filled with many hostile nations. Essentially, they'll, they'll realize God's promises, but between them and the accomplishment of those promises, there's going to be a lot of labor, there's going to be a lot of struggle. Uh, it won't be um, an immediate uh, process. There's labor that lies ahead for God's people. But, there in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, God promised the Israelites, before they'd even crossed over the river, He promised them that there would come a day in which He would give them rest in the land beyond the river. And he said, furthermore, that in that day he would establish a place where he would make his name to abide in the promised land. Now after that point, particularly as you get out of Deuteronomy, there's little indication of rest for quite some time. You have the uh, the conquest, the time of the judges, uh, the warfare between Saul's family and David's supporters. there's, There's not too much rest to be found. But then, when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 7 you read that God now has brought this rest uh, to David and through David has brought it to all of Israel. Uh, You recognize there that 
God is bringing the rest that He had promised. There's a clear benchmark in God's redemptive work. Uh, God has, His redemptive work has reached a certain point and you're given the expectation that something new is about to occur, that there's some new uh, stage that's about to begin. And that's precisely what you find in that same chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, the Davidic covenant is established. Now y'all, I imagine, are, are well aware of the exchange that occurs between David and the prophet Nathan. Uh, David desires to build a house for the Lord. Nathan says, go ahead. Then God corrects Nathan and Nathan corrects David, uh, telling David that, God, that he will not build God a house, but that God will build him a house. And specifically by that meaning that God will give David uh, a dynasty. Uh, you get all of that in Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 4 through 16, which is, in a lot of ways, kind of the, the core of the Davidic covenant. And what, what emerges from that passage is that God is taking all of His covenantal purposes, all of the purposes uh, that have flowed so seamlessly from Moses into David, He's taking all of them and He's channeling them through David. Now you get a clear sense of that in verses 9 through 11 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now God speaks of how He's been with David, how He's given David a great name, and how through David and his kingly rule, He will continue to bring the blessings of His covenant to Israel. Uh, God speaks of planting them, protecting them, governing them, giving them rest. Uh, very clearly, God's covenantal work amongst His larger people, Israel, is being channeled through His work in and with David. It's clear that that certainly is the message that David took from God's promises. Now, you know, as I say, up through verse 16, is, are, you know, those are the words that God speaks to David. Or at that point, God, well, it's the words that God's given to Nathan to give to David. Verse 17, uh, you read that, that, that Nathan conveys all these words to David. And then in verse 18 you begin to read the account of David's prayer that he prays in response to the promises of the covenant. Um, immediately after God's words to David, Scripture records for us really what I think you could justifiably call David's inspired response to the Davidic covenant. And in that reflection on the Davidic covenant, it's clear that David... Um, understands that he and his descendants are going to be the conduit, in a sense, uh, for all of God's covenantal work and God's covenantal purposes amongst Israel. Now you see that particularly in verses 24 through 27. Uh, very clearly, the establishment of David's house is seen as the way in which God is both accomplishing and manifesting his covenantal intention to have Israel as his people. Uh, God's purpose in Israel and with Israel is being consolidated in and through David and his descendants. Now, if you remember, we've said before that the overriding purpose of God's covenant is to have a people, uh, to have a people unto himself. And in his prayerful reflection on the covenant, David is indicating um, that this divine purpose to have a people has led to 
and is being furthered by the establishment of the Davidic monarchy. Uh, both in the words that God gives to David and in David's reflection on those words, uh, it's very clear that all of God's covenantal work is being channeled through David. Uh, in essence, David and then his house after him is being established as the mediators of the covenant. Uh, Robertson deals with that a little bit in his book. Uh, essentially, the, the Davidic king is being established as the permanent covenant mediator. Now, previously, there, there certainly had been mediators of the covenant. You know, the preeminent example being Moses. Uh, you also had Joshua. Uh, there, were, um, there had been covenantal mediators previously. But whereas men had previously been sort of individual covenant mediators, here God is establishing what you could almost term the office of a covenantal mediator. Um, think of it this way, under the arrangement that's kind of created by the Davidic covenant, if you were to be asked who is the covenant mediator, you know, who stands between God and His people in the covenant, you could answer that question with the name of a specific person, you could say Hezekiah, for instance, if Hezekiah is the king at the time. But you could also answer the question by referring to an office. At any point, if asked who's the covenant mediator, you could say the Davidic king. Now, the office of a covenant mediator that's in a sense greater than the person who's holding it is being established. This uh, Davidic kingship is the, uh, the mediatorial office, so to speak, within the covenant. Now, this notion of the Davidic king as being the covenant mediator uh, through the terms of the Davidic covenant comes out pretty strikingly a number of places in the Psalter. Now, we know that you know, a number of the Psalms are written by David, uh, but even those that aren't written by David are reflective of the situation that prevailed under the Davidic covenant. Uh, you have some, you know, Psalm 90, for instance, was written before David, uh, but for the most part, the Psalms reflect the, uh, the situation as it prevailed under the Davidic covenant. And as you read through the Psalms, you see that you know, time and again, the Davidic king is serving in a mediatorial sort of role between Israel and God. Uh, you get it with particular clarity, it seems to me, in Psalm 89, and then again in Psalm 132. That seem to be the two clearest psalms. You also get a hint of it in Psalm 2, but uh, 89 and 132 are the, the clearest examples. Uh, you get the clear sense that the, uh, the covenantal status, so to speak, of the people is bound up with the king. Uh, the king is serving that, that mediatorial sort of role. And that mediatorial function of the king leads into the second aspect that's, I would say, centrally important to the Davidic covenant. And that is the, the sort of balanced emphasis that the covenant gives us on, on the one hand, the obedience that God requires within His covenant, and on the other hand, uh, the mercy that He faithfully maintains within the covenant. Uh, that, that balanced emphasis between obedience and faithful mercy that obedience is brought out pretty, or that balance is brought out pretty clearly there in Second Samuel chapter seven, uh, where the 
covenant is established. I think it seems to me to be specifically brought out in verses 12 through 16. Uh, In those verses, God tells David that when he dies, his son will sit upon his throne and that that son then will open up into an entire dynasty. And God says to David that with each successive king, he will maintain a special relationship. Uh, Verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. God clearly is describing the very closest of relationships between himself and the Davidic kings. And with this son, God will judge iniquity. He makes that very clear there in verse 14. There God says, If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Now, you remember the, it's the, Davidic, or the Mosaic law that is the criterion of obedience within the Davidic covenant. And so essentially, uh, disobedience to the Mosaic law will bring chastisement upon the Davidic king. So there's a special relationship established between God and the king. And within the bounds of that special relationship, there will be chastisement for iniquity. But even in the midst of that chastisement, God makes it clear that He'll maintain faithful mercy. Uh, Verse 15 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had just said that He'll uh, chasten the king if he sins. And then He goes on to say, But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Uh, God then reiterates the same idea in verse 16 where he reaffirms that a descendant of David will sit on the throne in perpetuity. Uh, Clearly, whatever sin takes place and whatever chastisement occurs because of it, uh, the Davidic king will not be unseated. Uh, God won't renege on his promise here uh, to have a Davidic king. Now, in all of that, you see a, a pretty clear balance between chastisement and mercy. Um, and, and in that, we need to remember that this king, the king who's you know, experiencing both chastisement and mercy, that he is the covenantal conduit for God's purposes with his people. Um, in other words, the relative righteousness of the king has profound implications for all of God's people. Uh, when the king is obedient and knows blessing, all of the people know blessing. Uh, you also get, you know, throughout particularly the books of First and Second Kings, you get the repeated refrain that God has mercy on Israel because of His promises to David. Uh, all of the people of Israel, all of God's people are benefiting because of the mediator. Uh, when the mediator knows blessing, all of the people know blessing. But likewise, when the king knows chastisement, all of the people know chastisement. Uh, When punishment is brought on the king and on the nation because of the rebellion of the king, everyone suffers. Uh, The the king is very clearly uh, impacting all the nation. His his relative righteousness impacts everyone. So in this Davidic covenant, God, as it's described here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is describing a covenant in which his purposes are channeled through one man, the king, who is described as being God's son. And when that man sins, when he fails to render obedience to the law, God will chasten him 
but yet that chastening will not derail God's commitment to the covenant. Now, in the same breath, practically, God there is affirming on the one hand that the obedience of the Davidic king or the obedience of the mediator is both necessary and important on the one hand. And on the other hand, God is affirming that His mercy won't be affected by the relative obedience or disobedience of the mediator. Uh, The obedience of the mediator matters, but it's not going to undo God's faithful mercy uh, if the king is disobedient. And as you follow out the Davidic covenant through the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, you find that that is precisely the situation that prevailed. On the one hand, you find repeatedly that the Davidic kings are in constant need of and in constant receipt of, as well, a divine chastisement. Uh, Even David himself uh, finds himself in such a situation, and each of the kings after him is the same way, Uh, some to greater or lesser degree. If you've you've read Robertson on the Davidic covenant, uh, he takes the books of kings in particular, and he makes an interesting observation that frequently when the chastisement of a Davidic king is recorded in the Scriptures, the Scriptures explicitly state that that chastisement took place in accordance with the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord, in accordance with which the chastisement takes place, are these verses out of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, This declaration by God that He will chastise the sin of the Davidic kings. So, you see throughout the Davidic covenant that God is maintaining this commitment, this commitment to chastise the sin of the king. But on the other hand, you also see throughout the outworking of the Davidic covenant uh, that through all of those chastisements, God is also maintaining His mercy. Uh, To put it simply, God doesn't remove the line of David from the throne. Uh, He chastens David, but Solomon will still be king. He chastens Solomon, but Rehoboam will still be king. He chastens Rehoboam, but Abijah will still be king. It goes on. The kings receive chastisement that is their due, but that doesn't undo God's covenant promise and His faithfulness. Now, as you're, as you're probably thinking, as it probably is popping in your mind, uh, that brings up the question of the exile. Uh, if God is displaying constantly this balanced emphasis on chastisement and faithfulness, uh, what do we make of the exile? Uh, The exile undoubtedly is the greatest crisis in the Davidic covenant. It's uh, the greatest crisis in the outworking of the Davidic covenant. It's the greatest crisis in our understanding of the Davidic covenant. Uh, How how do we fit that in? How do we fit the exile in uh, with God's promises in the Davidic covenant? And we'll talk about the exile a little bit more uh, when we look at the New Covenant, but it's important to address it here as well because it it truly can seem as if in the exile the Davidic covenant is expiring. There's no more Davidic king on the throne. Uh, What seems to have been the hallmark of the Davidic covenant seems to be undone. And that is particularly serious if, in fact, the Davidic covenant is the current embodiment of the covenant of grace. If that's so, if the Davidic covenant represents the progressive state of the covenant of grace, and that Davidic covenant has an expiration date, 
then what does that say about the overall unity, the overall continuity, you could even say the overall validity of the covenant of grace? If you want to put it strongly, uh, the exile can appear to be probably the strongest argument for a dispensationalist view of Scripture. It can seem as if the embodiment of God's promises at that point is taken away and he then restarts later with another plan. Um, Now, in order to come to terms with the exile, we need to remember what we've said several weeks ago about the dual earthly and heavenly aspects of God's covenant promises. If you all remember that, we drew a little diagram up on the board. Um, We talked about how the earthly aspects of God's promises, the earthly types, uh, on the one hand, they pointed forward to a coming fuller realization, but they also represented a prior heavenly reality. Uh, They were uh, embodying not just something that was to come, but something that had come before. And the giving of an earthly Davidic king needs to be understood in that framework for understanding uh, the earthly types. Uh, The giving of a Davidic king wasn't an earthly type on which the later fulfillment was dependent. Uh, It wasn't as as if the line running from uh, the earthly type to the ultimate fulfillment, uh, if that line was severed, God's covenantal purpose was sacrificed but rather the the giving of an earthly Davidic king was a glimpse into God's overarching eternal covenantal purpose. So, if there's a period of time, and undoubtedly there was a period of time, uh, if there is a period of time in which this earthly Davidic king went into obscurity, that doesn't affect the overall continuity and power of God's covenantal purpose. Uh, The Davidic king uh, was, in a sense, no more than a glimpse into what God had been doing, and would continue to do. Now, the real, the real core of the Davidic covenant isn't a political monarch, but rather the core of the Davidic covenant is its disclosure of a mediator and the promise that mercy will be maintained in the midst of chastisement. Uh, the, the giving of the Davidic king, uh, the physical man on a physical throne, uh, is not uh, the ultimate not ultimately what the Davidic covenant has in view. And um, when you get to the end of the period of history, uh, the end of the chronological period covered by the historical books, you find that the scriptures are emphasizing uh, precisely that aspect of the Davidic covenant. The scriptures are emphasizing Uh, that God is maintaining mercy in the midst of chastisement. He's maintaining the Davidic covenant even when there is no Davidic king on a throne in Jerusalem. Uh, If you can look in particular at 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 27 through 30. And uh, if I recall correctly, I think uh, Robertson deals with that as well. Uh, At that point, uh, Jehoiachin is the current Davidic king and he's in exile. He, has, he could appear to have come along a little too late to fully enjoy the blessings of the Davidic covenant. But the scriptures tell us that evil Merodach, the Babylonian king at the time, uh, has had mercy on Jehoiachin 
Uh, he's released him from prison. He's given him preference. He's given him new clothes. He feeds him at his own table. Uh, very clearly, God is showing mercy to Jehoiachin in the midst of his chastisement. Uh, Jehoiachin, as the Davidic descendant, uh, is a mediatorial representative of God's people, and he is being shown tangible mercy in the midst of chastisement. Uh, the exile, you start, you know, the scriptures give us this indication that the exile isn't the abnegation of the Davidic covenant, it's not the doing away with God's promises to David, but rather the exile is in a very real sense the tangible outworking of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. Uh, the exile is the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men. Uh, David has been given a house, he's been given uh, this Davidic line, it's being preserved, in this case, uh, at the end of the period covered in the historical books, it's being preserved through Jehoiachin. Uh, God is chastening the sin of the Davidic kings, through that he's chastening the sins of Israel, but in the midst of that chastening he still is showing mercy. Uh, the exile is not the graveyard, so to speak, of the Davidic covenant, but rather the Davidic covenant is being played out in and through the exile. Uh, God is maintaining the house of David. Uh, he is showing mercy even as he is chastening sin. And, of course, the, that covenant that's being preserved, as we know, comes to its fullest flowering, its fullest expression uh, in the New Testament. I think it's notable that the New Testament, as the canon is arranged, begins in its very first verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, by reminding us that Jesus Christ is a son of David. Uh, the point there isn't that God is hearkening back to some covenant that's been void for several centuries. The point is that that covenant, the Davidic covenant, is still binding, even though it's fallen into some obscurity through chastisement. But it is still binding, and it's coming to fulfillment and moving on to its next stage of revelation in and through Christ. Um, the, the scriptural emphasis that you get again and again in the New Testament of Christ as being the son of David um, indicates that Christ, very clearly, is the fulfillment of the promises made to David. Promises that, therefore, clearly have not been voided by the exile. They still are binding. They still have relevance. Uh, God has maintained those promises He's shown both chastisement and mercy to his people, and he's preserved the line of David. And through all of that, the central development, as I see it, of the Davidic covenant is brought to light. Uh, God is channeling his covenantal purposes through David and through his descendants, and in doing that, he's revealing both the obedience that he requires of his people and the mercy that he maintains toward his people. Um, Take, I'll take just a couple minutes to make a couple of other points on the Davidic covenant. That'll take us a little bit past the hour, but then we'll take a couple minute break if that's all right with everybody. Um, you know, given that if, if this is the uh, the central development, you could say, of the Davidic covenant, uh, that God is essentially establishing this mediatorial office, uh, and that He is uh, in that office showing the importance of obedience as well as showing His faithful mercy. Uh, if that is the central development of the Davidic covenant, it seems to me that we can 
make at least four observations uh, about what the Davidic covenant contributes to our growing understanding of the covenant of grace. The first observation is that in this Davidic covenant, God is setting before His people the mediatorial office through which Jesus Christ must, most fundamentally, be understood. Um, uh, in, In the Davidic covenant, God is setting before His people the mediatorial office through which Jesus Christ must, most fundamentally, be understood. As you see in the Davidic covenant, God's purposes are being channeled through this one man, the king. Uh, His covenantal status affects the status of all of God's people. Uh, The obedience or the disobedience of the king has implications for the people. Uh, God is very tangibly working through the king. Now in this, the Davidic covenant very clearly is preparing God's people uh, as they looked for the salvation that would come through God's covenant to look not to some abstract sort of favor as you had under the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, They're not looking to an impersonal law that you had in the Mosaic covenant, uh, but rather God's people are looking to one man. Uh, They're looking to one man through whom the covenant is functioning, through whom blessing comes. Uh, One man assumes prominence in God's covenantal dealings with his people. Uh, In a very real sense, the Davidic covenant is preparing God's people for Christ as their covenant mediator. Uh, The second observation that comes, I think, justifiably from the Davidic covenant is that the obedience of this covenantal mediator, uh, his obedience to the Mosaic law, matters. As as you see, as you read through uh, the Scriptures, when the king disobeyed, he was chastised. And that chastisement had implications for all the people. Uh, the legal obedience of the covenant mediator matters. Uh, that point is even made uh, in the Psalms. And we don't have the time to look at it this morning. Um, but um, in the, the book that I mentioned last week, I think I brought it again. In the, the Law is Not of Faith. That book, if you all are familiar with it, uh, Dr. Belcher has an article or an essay called um, The King, the Law, and Righteousness in the Psalms. If you're interested in more detail on the Davidic Covenant, it's a a very interesting essay on uh, even the Psalms' presentation of the importance of the Davidic king's obedience to the Torah. Uh, The the obedience of the covenantal mediator uh, is critically important. Um, Now, as we move into the uh, New Covenant and we look at Jesus' work as our mediator, uh, this understanding of the importance of the mediator's obedience paves the way for our understanding of Christ's active obedience. Uh, And then, therefore, the subsequent imputation of His righteousness to His people. Uh, Even in the Davidic Covenant, the, the, the categories that later yield our understanding of Christ's active obedience are found clearly. The, the obedience of the mediator uh, is important. And the, the third observation from the Davidic covenant is that the sovereignty of God's mercy does not negate the importance of His people's obedience. Uh, it's, 
it's not at all contradictory, and the Old Testament bears it out in the Davidic covenant, it's not at all contradictory to say both that God's mercy cannot be derailed and that his people must render obedience and they'll face chastisement if they don't. Um, you know, w- within the covenant of grace, God's mercy is sovereign, it's unmerited, it's unstoppable, but that doesn't obviate the importance and the necessity of his people's obedience. Uh, you see that you know, again and again in the Davidic covenant. Uh, God's promise will endure in spite of wicked kings, but the wicked kings will die for their rebellion. Um, even amongst the righteous kings. Uh, David has his house maintained. He enjoys God's blessing, but he loses the son of his fornication. Uh, there is a, a, it's not contradictory to speak on the one hand of God's unstoppable mercy and on the other hand of the importance of the obedience of his people. But finally, the fourth uh, observation and it's a pretty simplistic one, um, is that David, who is serving to prepare us for Christ, that David was a king. That might sound like a a strange observation, but I think in in using the Davidic covenant uh, in preaching or teaching, it's helpful, I think, to press upon God's people the necessity of seeing Christ not only as their Savior, not only as their friend, uh, but also as their Lord, uh, their King. He's one who demands allegiance. He demands obedience. You know, as God's revelation of His redemptive work becomes clearer and clearer, as it you know, grain, gains so much more clarity in the Davidic covenant, uh, God isn't giving us a, a kindly old man or a, a good buddy to represent to us what He's doing. He gives us a King. And our understanding of Christ must be an understanding of Christ as our King. Uh, that has a, a great deal to say to us, I think, about the importance of uh, obedience uh, within uh, the New Covenant, uh, the way that we ought to relate to Christ, not only as our Savior, our friend, our brother, uh, but also as our King. Um, now, like I said, that is all the time will take for the Davidic Covenant. Now, like I said, if you are interested in Obviously, if you have questions, I'll take questions as well. But if you want to do more reading on the Davidic Covenant, um, like I said, uh, Dr. Belcher's essay in The Law is Not a Faith is uh, very interesting. There's also a book, uh, Sealed with an Oath, by Paul Williamson. I don't know if you all are familiar with this book. Uh, Williamson um, has some uh, views on the overall covenantal structure uh, that are a little bit different from mine. I don't agree with everything that he says, uh, but his treatment of the Davidic covenant, I think, is very good. Uh, if you're, he, he tends to give some insights into it that you don't find in most treatments. So if you're interested in reading more about the Davidic covenant, uh, I would, uh, on the Davidic covenant, recommend Williamson to you. So are there any questions that we have before we take a little break?
Well, it seems as if, um, for instance, when you're in you know, the, the period of time, like Ezra and Nehemiah sort of period of time, there was at least, a, they, they weren't, from what you can tell, for what it seems to me, they weren't necessarily gunning for a, a full-fledged king. Um, Zerubbabel seems to have a, a prominence that you know, derives at least partly from his Davidic descent. Um, but it seems as if at that point their, their primary focus is on reestablishing the temple and worship. Um, they, they, they certainly understood that as being, the, I guess in some ways, the, the, the primary way in which they interacted with God through the covenant, uh, through worship. Um, and you know, certainly when you, get to the, when you get to the New Testament, there's the, the desire for an earthly king um, that doubtlessly had, had, had grown. I think probably initially after the, the trauma of the exile, probably the first thing they wanted to do as seems to be the case in Ezra and Nehemiah, was to rebuild the temple and reinstitute worship. Uh, but then as that became more uh, fixed, they evidently then also wanted, moved on to desiring a reinstitution of the monarchy. Uh, that, at least the picture you get of it in the New Testament, has very obviously very secular overtones. That I don't know how much uh, the, the average agitator for the monarchy what kind of an understanding he had of what the Davidic monarchy was and what it pointed toward, but um, and the, there, there was a growing desire to reinstitute it. And they obviously weren't um, weren't pacified by Herod and others. I mean, they, they weren't satisfied that that was uh, a suitable political arrangement. So there, there evidently was was a a desire, but like I say, I think at least at least initially their their fundamental desire was for the temple and worship to be reestablished. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.